The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 6. We've been in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and this is kind of an interesting message. I've been away on vacation for two weeks and I didn't advertise or post pictures of our vacation because it was such a privilege that I didn't want people to struggle with jealousy if I sent them or if I posted pictures. We were basically in the Florida Keys for two weeks with our family and my father-in-law who paid for our lodging and brought his boat down from South Carolina. And we basically have been living on an island in the Keys. And our view from the screened-in porch is to the dock, and beyond the dock is the water to the Gulf and to the Atlantic. And we basically fish for supper for every night, except for two that I can remember. And it was just beautiful there. The, the sunrises were great, and the sunsets were spectacular. And the sights from the waters during the day, seeing some of these incredible fish, the stars at night were incredible. I don't know if anybody here was able to see the crescent moon and Venus right underneath it the last three nights. Just something out of a science magazine. And in the Keys, it's very dark, and so it's beautiful at night. And so it was easy to prepare for this sermon in one sense because I let worries and cares go in Maryland. I had been in Florida, but two nights before I was about to return, I was staring at the ceiling at 2.45 a.m. because reality had kicked in that I'm still a pastor in the midst of a pandemic, and there's a lot that I'm going to need to catch up on. And you start feeling anxious and thinking about tomorrow. And I mention that because maybe you're in a place where your life is carefree. Maybe you're, you're kind of, you know, life at the beach, life is good. You don't have any worries. Or maybe you're one of these people that's not sleeping well at night. And you have lots of anxieties and lots of worries. Well, whether you're either one of those today, at some point you are going to need this text. Because the reason that Jesus says in three times here not to be anxious is because we do get anxious. And when I am afraid, I will trust in thee, not if I'm afraid. We will have times where we will have anxieties. And Jesus isn't just giving a prohibition against worry, but he also gives us the prescription, a remedy for worrying so that we can glorify God today. And I need this text, and I think we all need this text. So let's give attention to God's word from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus is turning the world upside down or or right side up. He's ushering in the kingdom of God, and he's the king of the kingdom that he's bringing in. And his kingdom is radical, life-changing instruction that he's giving in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with this kingdom is not for the rich or the powerful or influential or movers and shakers, although they enter the kingdom too, but the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. It's not for the happy, the on top of the worlds, the world, people who have the world by the oyster, you know, world, the world's an oyster. It's for those who mourn. You remember it's for the meek, those who turn the other cheek. It's for those who hunger and thirst, not for promotion or for pay or for influence or a spouse or children. It's for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You remember it's for those who are merciful not those who are merciless or those who write people off or say, I'm so done with them or they're dead to me. No. The kingdom of God is for those who are pure in heart, peacemakers striving for peace, for those who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, Jesus is weeding out then all the hypocrisy that he gets to in chapter 6 of people doing things for people or The praises of men is really their audience. And what we see in chapter 6 is that the problem with hypocrisy and the problem with worry, it's the same problem as itself is on the throne. And the Lord's Prayer is once again turning everything right side up. The whole point of the Lord's Prayer is, is in essence, we've been using prayer for our purposes. And so he just rightly corrects that. And says, okay, prayer now is all about the Father's business, the Father's glory, the Father's will, not our business, not our glory, not our will. And we don't get to the daily bread for ourselves until we're halfway through the prayer. And then Jesus gives a contrast of test in this Sermon on the Mount. And they're all twos. It's either this or it's that. And it's to kind of reveal our hearts as to which kingdom are we really living in and which kingdom are we really living for. Not just the one that we profess to live for, because Jesus describes here two sets of eyes. There's a good set of eyes that give good light, or there's bad eyes that give bad light. And he's really getting at greed. And then there's two different masters. 
Who are you really serving? Are you serving God or are you serving money? And there's two types of seeking. The Gentiles seek after all these things, but you're to seek first the kingdom of God. He talks later in chapter 7 about two trees, right? You've got a good, healthy tree that bears good, healthy fruit, and then you have a diseased, bad tree that bears bad fruit. You have two gates. You have a wide gate that leads to destruction, and you have a narrow gate that leads to life. And then he concludes with two foundations. You have a house that's built on the sand, and you have a house that's built on the rock. But when the storms of life come, the rain, the wind, and the flood, the one stands and the other falls. What are you building your life on? You see, in this text before us is really three things in particular. You have imperatives, inquiries, or questions. I needed an I and instruction. So we got three eyes, imperatives, inquiries, and instruction. And the instruction is really about our Heavenly Father. Jesus is opening up a window here, and he's letting us see who his Father is. And whenever you see the term Heavenly Father, you probably get the most of those in the Gospels or in the New Testament, in Matthew. Several references to the Heavenly Father. The imperatives of the text, there are many. Do not treasure up treasures. That's literally what it is in the original language. Do not treasure up treasures on earth, but treasure up treasures in heaven. You see, in Jesus' day, it was hard to store up treasures. They tried, but there was no freezers. There's no electricity. And so, you know, you can have the, the worms coming and, and eating stuff, and you've got moths and rust that destroy, and thieves breaking in and stealing, and, and you think, well, we're so much better today. Well, we still have Bernie Madoffs that can come and steal our 401k, and we have pandemics that can just radically change the world, and our jobs, and all of our employments are in flux right now. And it's a good reminder to all of us that what are we really living for? I can't promise you what tomorrow is going to look like. I just know right now we're in the clouds. And when you're in the clouds, the captain usually comes on and says, the, no, the seatbelt uh, light has gone off and you need to keep your seatbelt on because we're expecting turbulence. We're expecting turbulence. We should be expecting that right now. We've been in it for months and our, the way that our world is presently set up, it wasn't structured for months and months of pandemics. And so everything is beginning to change. Well, as we think about what we're living for, I love the attitude of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, a great commentator. He lived in the 1600s, Puritan. One night he was robbed, and he returned home and he wrote this in his diary. Lord, I thank you that I've never been robbed before, that although they took my money, they spared my life, that although they took everything, it wasn't very much, and that it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. That's a pretty good perspective, isn't it, after he's been pillaged? One of my favorite quotes from Matthew Henry in his commentaries on Hebrews 11, when it says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. These are the heroes of faith in, in chapter 11. And Henry says a lot of great things, but one of the things he says about this, he says they expected little from the world. They cared not to engage much in it. 
they endeavor to lay aside every weight, to gird up the loins of their minds, to mind their way, to keep company and pace with their fellow travelers, looking for difficulties and bearing them and longing to get home. But I love this idea that they expected little from this world. C.S. Lewis says, expectations are everything. What are your expectations that this world is going to deliver to you? You see, it's, I think it's one of the best ways to kind of test where our treasure is and where our hearts are, is what are our expectations? Tim Keller has this great quote. He says, if I were to lead you into a room and I say, now before we go into this room, let me tell you what this room is. This is the honeymoon suite. And you say, okay, let me see it. You walk on in, you look around, and you would think, what a dump. But if before you went into that very same room, and if instead of telling... Uh, of me telling you it's a honeymoon suite. Instead, I say, I want you to realize this is a jail cell. And you walk in and you look around and you say, this is a pretty nice place. (laughs) Because expectations are the filter through which you're reading and seeing what happens in this life. And so much of our anger and frustration is often our expectations. Expectations are a good test for us. Let me tell you about two people that I came across just in the last two weeks. These are heroes from church history that I've never heard of before. One of them is from 16th century Holland, and this is the period of the Mennonites were outlawed, and they were the Anabaptists, and these were people that actually would baptize after conversion, which we would call Baptists today, and many of these Anabaptists were uh, persecuted, and some of them by the Catholics uh, quite uh, heavily. And one of these guys, his name was Dirk Willens. And he was baptizing people after conversion. And the Catholics wanted to kill him. And so he was put in prison. And when he was in prison, he took rags and he tied together these rags and he made a rope. And he escaped from prison. And as he was sca- escaping, one of the prison, either the prison guard or prison warden, somebody saw him and went chasing after him. And he's running through an icy field and an icy pond. And he's small and he goes sailing across the pond. But the guy pursuing him falls through the ice and starts screaming for his life. And Willens, Dirk Willens, turned around and he came back and he saved this man's life. Now, wouldn't your expectation be that if you had just saved this guy's life, that he would certainly let you go? Well, not so. His pursuer was grateful and astonished that he would do such a thing, but nevertheless arrested him because it was his, he thought it was his duty to do so. And a few days later, Willens was executed by being burned at the stake in the town of Aspirin. He was storing up treasure in heaven. And what proved his heart and his treasure was willing to save the life of his enemy, enemies to the cost of his very own life. Shocking. Expectations blown. And yet he was faithful. Another amazing story from history is the life of Alan Gardner. This is a hero from Anglican church history, but he was a British naval officer, missionary to Patagonia, which I don't even know where that was. It's at the bottom of South America where Chile and Argentina come together. And he went there in the 1800s. He died in 1851. And the, the story of his life 
was it took him a while to raise the money, and he had seven people with him, and they, they set off for Patagonia with two boats, and they ran into various difficulties, and one of the boats that had more of the supplies was somehow lost or, or sunk, and they got stuck on this, this island, Picton Island, and they were waiting for supplies to come from England, and they waited and they waited, and the supplies got stuck in the Falkland, Falkland Islands, and the seven men slowly died of starvation. And you think, what a terrible life. I mean, how does that fit this text? This text is God promises that he's going to provide for you. And he does provide for his children. But there are a few rare examples like this one that I'm telling you, where you wonder, well, how did this guy end? Well, when they finally got to, the, to finding these men on this island, all they got was his journal. And a couple of these journal entries from the end of Alan Gardner's life are just amazing. Let me read you a couple real quick. My care is all cast upon God. This is like a week or two before he dies. My care is all cast upon God, and I'm only waiting his time and his good pleasure to dispose of me as he shall see fit. Whether I live or die, and may it, may it be in him. I commend my body and my soul to his care and keeping and earnestly pray that he will take my dear wife and children under the shadow of his wings, comfort, guard, strengthen, and sanctify them wholly, that we may together in a brighter and eternal world praise and adore his goodness and grace in redeeming us with his precious blood and plucking us as brands from the burning to bestow upon us the adoption of children and make us inheritors in the king of his heavenly kingdom. Amen. A day or two before his death. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured I was happy beyond all expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. Let them also be assured that my hopes were full and blooming with immortality, that heaven and love in Christ, which mean one and the same divine thing, were in my heart, that the hope of glory, the hope laid for, up for me in heaven, filled my whole heart with joy and gladness, and that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am at a strait betwixt two, to abide in the body or to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Let them know that I love them and prayed for every one of them. God bless them all. <clears throat> and in his last recorded entry, ah, I am happy day and night, hour by hour, asleep or awake. I am happy beyond the poor compass of language to tell. My joys are with him whose delights have always been with the sons of men, and my heart and my spirit are in heaven with the blessed. I, I have felt how holy is that company. I have felt how pure are their affections, and I have washed me in the blood of the Lamb and asked my Lord for the white garment, that I too may mingle with the blaze of day and be among them one of the sons of light. Much more can I add, but my fingers are aching with cold, and I must wrap them up in my clothes, but my heart, my heart is warm, warm with praise, and thanksgiving, and love to God my Father, and love to God my Redeemer. They finished well, didn't they? They showed where their treasure was. They honored the Lord. You see, what Jesus is getting at is that anxious people have their treasure in the wrong place. There's only two places for our treasure to be. Either our treasure is in heaven, or our treasure is on earth. 
And as Sinclair Ferguson says, every, every earthly bound treasure is liable to fail through deterioration, whether it's moss or rust destro- destroying or through unforeseen circumstances, thieves break in and steal or pandemics. Only heaven is immune from the ravages of time and sin. And therefore, what Jesus is saying is put your treasure in heaven, not on earth. Live for heaven and not for earth. And so come now and make much of him today because we have no guarantees about tomorrow. And the more we gather possessions, if we're trying to feel secure making our treasure on earth, the more we're going to feel we need them in order to be secure. And the more we need them, we need to guard them, then we need to maintain their own security. Then the more we have more anxiety as we read about in the parable of the rich fool who was actually anxious because his barns weren't big enough and he had to make bigger ones. And so what Jesus is saying is it's impossible to have two masters. It's impossible to moonlight. So picture Jesus here. He's the spiritual doctor and you are coming to him with your anxiety. And Jesus begins to ask some questions. Well, tell me, where, where is your treasure? Tell me, who who is your master? Tell me about your faith. Why is your faith so small? You see, Jesus is not only diagnosing, but he's also giving the remedy. He's giving the prescription. And he tells us three times, and these are imperatives, first one in particular, do not be anxious about your life in verse 25, 31, and 34. And we know that anxiety is just this huge issue in our culture. And I'm sure that anxiety is on the rise in the midst of this pandemic. But according to NIH, nearly one in three adolescents of ages 13 to 18 will experience an anxiety disorder. The numbers have been rising steadily between 2007, 2012, and anxiety disorders in children and teens went up 20% in five years. There's these high pressures or high expectations and a lot of pressure that parents often don't even realize how much pressure they're putting on their children to achieve, achieve. We're in an achievement culture. And so if the children aren't being pushed, pushed, pushed to achieve, and we have these bumper stickers on the back of cars that tell you, you know, the parent is so proud because my child goes to this college or this elementary school or this middle school or this high school. And sometimes, you know, it's just, it, it, it can be subtle. But what we're seeing is that in 2016, 41% of students said to answer to the question, uh, if they feel overwhelmed by all they have to do, 41% of students said yes in 2016, and compared to only 28% in the year 2000 and 18% in 1985. So that number is only going one direction. There's a recent cartoon that in the book uh, Seculosity, I've quoted this before, there's a funny cartoon that he refers to where a mother and father are sitting with their elementary age son in a waiting room. And the closed door next to their couch reads admissions. And the mother looks actively concerned, her eyebrows raised in attention, her face unsmiling. Meanwhile, the father looks over and says to the boy, now remember, be the yourself that we talked about. <laughs> an interview admissions for an elementary age student, you know, be the yourself that we've talked about, you know, rehearse those lines a little. Well, 
worry is often what we see. It's, a, it's an emotion that's revealing an idol. There's usually an idol under the surface of control, of power, or approval. And this idol isn't being served. And so now the iceberg coming out of the water is this emotion called worry. But ask the Holy Spirit to probe your heart and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's an offensive way in me, but lead me in the way everlasting. Our worry is really a sign of two things. Low thoughts of God and big thoughts of self. Low thoughts of God, big thoughts of self. You see how Jesus got at that in the, in the Luke passage that was read to us earlier in the service? When he says, if you can't even do such a thing as this, you can't even add an hour to your life. If you can't do that, what are you doing worrying about these things? You can't do anything about it. I mean, even Irma Bombeck said that worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but nowhere to go. You can't go anywhere with worry, and you're not going to add any hours to your life. And what Jesus is saying is, how foolish is that? Don't you recognize that every single thing that you do is being controlled by me? I'm the one giving life and health and all, all things. And, and if birds, two birds are sold for a penny, and how much I watch over them, and that not even a bird can fall apart from the will of the Father, and how much more are you treasured than these birds? You're the apex of his creation, his precious stamp of his image. He's promised he will take care of you, and he's already given you his one and only son. Will he not now from his heart freely give us all things? He doesn't just love you. He likes you too. Think of it like a math equation. If X is true about the bird and the lilies, how much more will Y be true? How much more does he care for you? Martin Luther put it like this. He says, you see, he's making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It's a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He's made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hands. And so Jesus is giving these inquiries. There's lots of questions in this text. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I wonder how many of you have ever heard of Bob Marley's song, The Three Birds, The Three Little Birds. I listened to this on vacation, and uh, he, he's not a believer. I think he might have even died from drugs. But this is quite a theological song. He says this, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing's going to be all right. Singing, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Rise up this morning, smile with the rising sun. Three little birds pitch by my doorstep, singing sweet songs of melodies pure and true, saying, this is my message to you, singing, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Singing, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing 
is going to be all right. Got to love that reggae song. Listen to that sometime and be reminded of the great theology that's in there from Matthew 6. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? It's useless. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more? Will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. And this, fa- this phrase, little faith, Jesus introduces us to this phrase. It's going to be used four times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's literally little faiths. It's a plural adjective. And he's going four times. I mean, when he he stills the storm, when he's asleep on the boat, he says, little faiths, what's your problem? And then when Peter starts to sink in the wind and the waves, and he starts to, he's out walking on the water, but he starts to sink. And Jesus says, you little faith, oh, you have little faith. And then when he feeds the 4,000, after he's already fed the 5,000, and they're wondering how he did this, he says, little faiths. He refers to his disciples because what Jesus is doing with his disciples throughout the Gospels in his discipleship method is he's building their faith. And that's what Jesus is doing with us as children, is he's really building our faith to trust him. And so look at the birds of the air. Isn't this interesting? We're commanded to look and we're commanded to consider. Steve Brown used to always end his messages with, now you think about that. Well, and, and, and Whitfield would end his messages with, uh, go and learn what this means, from one of Jesus' messages. Well, just go and think about that. Look and consider. When you hear the birds, when you see them driving down the road or you're walking, and you see these birds... Remember, God's taking care of them. And when you see these beautiful lilies and these flowers and you're driving down the highway and you see these wild flowers and they're beautiful, and like, where'd they come from? God. And he's saying, how much more do I clothe and take care of you? And he's saying, look, the Gentiles seek after all these things. This is what they run after. But the two seeks here, everything's in twos in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Gentiles seek these things, but if you're a part of the kingdom, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your father knows you need them all. Don't you love the theology about his father here? He's saying your your father knows you need them. Your father is, is taking care of you. How would you feel as a parent if you were, uh, you know, your little child is at the edge of the pool and you're saying, Jump, jump to me, I'll catch you. But your child just says, I, I don't trust you. I don't, you know, your child just refuses to jump. And you know as the parent, I've got you, I will catch you. But the child just refuses to jump. You see, we honor him by jumping and trusting him. There's something about this idea of anxiety where Jesus is really getting at have big thoughts of God and little thoughts of self. You see, the Bible connects anxiety with pride. 
We're told to humble ourselves in 1 Peter under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. That's the imperative. Well, then the participle, which is tied to the imperative, is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So when you cast all your anxieties on him, you're humbling yourself before him and trusting that he will exalt you. So how do you humble yourself before the Lord? By casting all your anxieties upon him. Psalm 131, my heart is not lifted up, my, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You see, when the psalmist didn't raise his heart up too high, or his eyes or his heart, and he didn't occupy himself with things beyond his control, he calmed and quieted his soul. But typically, we're just the other way around. We've lifted our hearts up. Our eyes are raised too high. We occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. And we haven't calmed or quieted our soul like a weaned child. And so we have to flip the right side upness of the kingdom. And what we see is Jesus is calling us little faiths. And he's saying, trust me, my father is a good father and he will provide for you. Tim Keller has this great story about the Queen of Elizabeth years ago, and she wanted this guy to be on her ship to take care of the ship, but he said, I have a business here in England, and I can't go. And she said to him, you take care of my business, and I'll take care of your business. You come with me on this ship, and I'll make sure your business is okay. That's the same thing Jesus is saying here. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. I'll take care of you. Jesus is just a little bit greater than the Queen of England. Okay? So we can trust him. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for providing for us our clothes, our health, our drink. Lord, you have provided houses, homes, parents, shelter, innumerable blessings. And yet we find ourselves anxious at times, thinking it's all on us. And I know many, Lord, are wondering what's going to happen with their jobs and their economy, with our next president. All these things, Lord, we just lay them at your feet. We don't know what will happen, but we can trust you today. Just as you care for the birds, care for the lilies, may we honor you with our faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.